you rich. Continue this theme that we've been in in First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen. We tend to make, and David's mentioned this, I, I think, even last week, has pointed out that you know, as as Christians in general, we tend to make a big deal out of the cross, and we should. The cross is no small thing. In fact, it's a crucial thing, and it's crucial that Jesus died, and that He died on a cross. I do find it interesting and a little bit perplexing, however, that so much attraction is placed on the cross and so little on resurrection. It's one of the things that's been coming out of this last few weeks in 1 Corinthians. I think this because as I experience Jesus and as I've been thinking about resurrection these past couple of weeks, I believe this. Oh, I need a little clip. Yes, you do. Sorry. I don't think it was the draw of the cross that brought Jesus to resurrection. I think it was the opposite. I think it was the draw of resurrection that brought Jesus through the cross. Now, way back on Sunday, January 25th, I know because I went and actually re-listened to the sermon, we started our walk together through uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. David talked about a statement that came out of a conversation I think he and Dave Bronson had um, if not, I'll give Dave Bronson the credit anyway. <coughs> Which struck him and stayed with him. And the statement was that resurrection is our singular hope. Resurrection is our singular hope. But Christians have a tendency to talk more as if the cross is our singular hope. More so than resurrection. And again, I don't think that all these things are mutually exclusive but that there does need to be a more balanced appreciation, and I hope today kind of restores a little bit of that appreciation for resurrection. I was wondering what Jesus might have been thinking about resurrection as he entered Jerusalem in those final weeks. You know, this is Ash Wednesday, and we're beginning Lent, and, and it's traditionally a time when we'd be reading the passage about Jesus on the donkey coming in for the feast and the festival. And that's, as I was thinking about what might be on his mind about the cross and resurrection, I got drawn to this passage today in John, from John's Gospel. I think we need to realize, however, that in the hearing of these seemingly simple words and images, an intense roller coaster of emotions that would have rippled through the gathered crowd. Now, today we don't react very strongly when we read or hear this passage. From our perspective, they're, you know, insightful, wise, and prophetic metaphors that Jesus would commonly use to try to get people who at that time didn't know what we know uh, to understand not only what was about to happen, but why as well. But the crowds at this time surely must have had their breath taken away by these simple words. I think this way because of the understanding at that time of what was commonly meant and envisioned by the term Son of Man 
And what they understood contrasted with what Jesus was meaning and revealing about the Son of Man. So a little explanation to help see this contrast, and I think the shock that most likely ensued in this simple little passage. And then I want to look at two verses specifically that are linked together. And I think there's a lot more in those two verses for us. So first, it's important to know that the term Son of Man, and you may already know this, we may have already covered this previously, but the term Son of Man would have been familiar to most of the people gathered around. In that moment where Jesus was, it wasn't a term or a title that Jesus himself made up. Specifically, there is imagery in the book of Daniel and a reference to one like a son of man that is key to unlocking the clash of ideas that's about to take place. Now, if you remember, and if you don't know, in the book of Daniel, Daniel has a series of visions. In chapter 7 is one of those visions. Instead of putting it up there and reading through it because it's pretty long, just take my word for it, Daniel's vision is primarily of four savage, cruel, and sadistic beasts that have their way in the world. They have dominion in the world. One is described as a beast with iron teeth. One has multiple heads. Uh, one has ribs in his teeth. One has horns with eyes in them. It's, it, it's just all kinds of nasty. Through the years, as Israel underwent cycles of freedom and destruction and captivity and return and rebuilding, they wondered what their future might really be. And they came to clearly understand that those beasts that Daniel had a vision of were, in their reality at that time, the current world powers, which were the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians. These powerful nations were an unrelenting and constant source of suffering and domination for little Israel. Yet into this very same and awful vision that Daniel has, he begins to describe in chapter 7 a promising new future. A future lived under the reign of the Ancient of Days. Now in this part of the vision, am I in the right place yet? In this part of the vision, the primary evil, for those of you that are gamers, this is the boss beast. Right? <laughs> this is the one you got to get to to get to the next level. So in this part of the vision, the boss beast is defeated, destroyed, and his body is given over to be burned. The rest of their beasts, I find this fascinating, and I, I want to look more into this, and maybe this is another sermon or message for another day, but the rest of the beasts have their dominion taken away. But their lives are actually prolonged for an unspecified amount of time. Now following this hopeful declaration comes an even more crucial piece of the vision as it pertains to the scene that's unfolding in John's Gospel. Into this vision now comes one like a son of man who approaches the Ancient of Days and who is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So the dominion that was enjoyed, and this is what makes it absolutely fascinating to me, so the dominion that was enjoyed by these beasts and these beastly nations was to be taken away and given to the Son of Man, and then these beastly powers that used to exercise dominion would now be subjected to the dominion of the Son of Man. 
And I'm really curious to try to imagine and think about and reflect on how that would have gone. Because you can imagine my response. <laughs> but try to imagine how Jesus, in the grace and love of his dominion, what would he have done with these prolonged living beasts? Interesting question. But I can go off there to tell stories. Here is how the dominion of the Son of Man is described. It's an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and its kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So now, backing out from this vision and stepping again into Israel's reality, here they are, a nation that is very small, very weak, constantly harassed and squeezed by the power plays of its four most powerful national neighbors. But they had this collective dream of better times, a kind of golden age, most likely linked to the original promises of God and the promises, uh, the promised land and then the visions of David. They also knew that ushering in this future was not going to come by human means. Think Psalm 33, 17, right? The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. And they knew, in a very, very real way, that the age to come was only going to come through the direct intervention of God. So their very real position in the world, combined with an expectation of a God-designed and God-forged golden age, that all of that stuff got projected onto and pulled out of this vision of Daniel. So the hope and the understanding that developed out of the vision was that God would at some point intervene with his own champion, the Son of Man. So now, by the time of Jesus, a figure that it was at one point just part of a vision, kind of an undefined representation of power and dominion, had developed into more than just a symbol. It was now commonly understood to be a very real person, an undefeatable world conqueror that was going to be sent by God to defeat these beastly rulers that held dominion. This is the context and the expectation for the crowd's understanding of who and what the Son of Man was when Jesus shows up to throngs of people joyously shouting hallelujah. So now we step back into John's Gospel I hope with an ability to at least imagine how this passage would have sounded. In particular, setting from this text of John's Gospel, there were not just Jews in attendance. There were folks from all over the place. Everybody traveled, everybody visited, and at the time of the feast and the festival, there would have been a good number of uh, people around, and some of them were Greek. So this really shouldn't surprise us, because it's just not uncommon for folks from other nations to be around and make the trip. They've probably heard about this character, Jesus, and they've noticed the hubbub around him. And so a few Greeks evidently approach Philip, and word gets to Jesus that they want to see him. They want to have an audience with him. Now, this is actually a crucial question. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus begins his response. Oops, sorry. Jesus begins his response. The hour has come when the Son of Man must be glorified. 
don't just stop. Knowing a bit more about the context and the expectations around him, can you imagine the response? If this is what you've been waiting for, you've just been told by this guy that's working miracles and everybody's excited about him, just entered the city triumphantly, that the hour has come. It's happening in your lifetime, and it's here. This would have been huge. I am sure they must have had to pause and catch their breath. You can also understand why any of the leaders within earshot or hearing about this afterward would have been absolutely insane. Insane with what he was talking about and what he was claiming. And you can understand why they might feel threatened, why they would want to get after him. So this first statement is a showstopper in and of itself. And the crowd believes it knows exactly what Jesus means. It means that the long-suffering of being small and powerless is finally over. God's champion has finally arrived. But it soon also becomes very clear, before they've even had a chance to inhale again, that this son of man may be somebody that they're not expecting. This verse is an expectation breaker. And not just for, I think, obvious reasons. As suddenly as the idea of the conquest of the Son of Man emerged and opens everybody's eyes in shock, or excitement, or anger, that idea takes an equally sudden turn towards sacrifice and death. That was not the expectation. And this idea of the Son of Man falling like a grain of wheat into the earth and dying would have been absolutely contrary to the common understanding and hope from the visions of Daniel about what was to come. It's at least 180 degrees in the opposite direction. The Son of Man was never depicted as a martyr from whose life others were going to rise after him. No, there were very real beasts that needed to be conquered right here and right now. When Jesus said the Son of Man was to be glorified, they thought he meant with subjected earthly kingdoms made to grovel at his feet. But he was revealing a glory given to a self-sacrificing Son of Man. When the word Son of Man was mentioned, they thought of the conquest of the armies of God. Jesus was revealing a conquest through self-sacrifice and a conquest gained through resurrection. See, I really believe, in my heart of hearts, that Jesus knew this. Defeating worldly powers might bring a different life, but dying for others will bring real life. Hopefully that sounds familiar, because we've spent time in that same place with Paul, who was reminding us to put the needs of others before our own. Jesus knew that his dying wouldn't just bring different life. It was going to bring real life. And not just because of the cross, but because of resurrection. Now, that in and of itself may not seem like a, a huge revelation, but let's take a look again at this verse, something that I really hadn't noticed or spent a lot of time with. Have you ever noticed this or really looked into this thought before? Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. The consequence 
of Jesus not going through the cross, of not going into resurrection is aloneness. I hadn't looked at this before, and I believe there's something extremely important to be said here. You know, at one level, Jesus is clearly foretelling his death and why he must die and be buried. The fruit of his death is indeed a coming kingdom, but a kingdom made up of those who will understand and believe only after he's died, after his resurrection. And the Ancient of Days has given him dominion. So there's also this consequence. The consequence of all this not happening is aloneness. But see, I don't think Jesus is simply talking about himself or his aloneness. I don't think Jesus is simply saying that if I don't go to the cross and die, I'm going to remain alone. <coughs> like that seat. That thought, as terrifying as that might be, is terrifying enough, I'm sure, for Jesus. And he is, I think, very much aware that if he walks away from this, he will be alone forever in a very, very real, very, very real way. He'll never be complete, he'll never be whole, and fully who and what he is, ever again. I think he understands the depths of what's at risk. The New Interpreter's Bible commentary says this, the significance of this parable for understanding Jesus' death lies in the contrast between remaining solitary and bearing much fruit. In John, fruit is Jesus' metaphor for the life of the community of faith. That's huge. That line is so important. Fruit is not something that we produce by our efforts to educate and disciple and entertain when we think this way, we're turning people into product and fall way short of what John means and what Jesus accomplished. Fruit is the shared life of the community of faith and its effect on the world around them. So I think Jesus is saying to anyone with ears to hear and everyone within earshot, without self-sacrifice, without sacrificing for others, there is only aloneness. There can never be real community, a real nation, a, a real life, a real lasting kingdom. Jesus is proclaiming, I'm not here just to make life different. I'm here to make real community possible. I'm here to make real life possible. And by association, what he's saying without self-sacrifice, you and I, we can make life look different but it cannot and will never be real life without giving ourselves away for others. Unless you and I, a seed, are willing to give it all, not just because we see it on a cross, but also because you believe that he's been resurrected and therefore the sacrifice is worth it. A different kind of alone is all the best we're ever going to be able to hope for. Just a different kind of alone. But if you are drawn to his life and to his resurrection, then resurrection is our singular hope. And that's also why Paul said, you know, if Jesus is not resurrected, then Daniel's vision was nothing. Faith was nothing. The cross was just another horrible show. And you should simply go on trying to make your life different. 
And that's the best you're going to have. So I think now we can more easily see that Jesus is talking about an expected golden age, but one that is only real and unconquerable, so long as people are willing to follow him by serving and sacrificing for one another. Only when they are willing to put the needs of others before themselves with a faith in resurrection. And that shocking revelation links directly to something that Jesus says a little later on in verse 32, and is also connected with Daniel's vision. Jesus now shares this intimate look at the state of his soul, even as they're trying to digest and reconcile what they've just heard and figured it out. His life and this sacrifice are not easy. In fact, for Jesus it was troubling. We should expect the same. But there is so much beauty right here, too. It's here in the vitally important connection of verse 32 with what we've already discovered. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I love this word, draw. It intones attraction. I'm drawn to this thing. Again, the NIV commentary, I put it in a slide, but let me read it. It states that, Verse 24, which we just looked at, states metaphorically what this verse, verse 32, <coughs> states directly, and as such is an appropriate response to the Greek's request. We want to see Jesus. Jesus is saying, one comes to me through faith. To be lifted up from the earth can be read as a description of the physical act of crucifixion. These things aren't separated. So Jesus is nailed to the cross, that cross is lifted up. But it can also be read as a description of Jesus' exaltation, his uplifting literally in his return to God. It's resurrection. I will draw all people unto me. I think this is a statement of immense sweep and scope. Jesus is going to, and is now, drawing all people unto him. Ultimately, Jesus himself is the draw. Get this, please. Ultimately, Jesus himself is the draw. And we should, as an ultimate truth, realize that it's his beauty that is above all other beauty. The birth, the suffering, the cross, the death, and the resurrection. These events serve to make him more attractive. They serve to make him worth being drawn to. I think this is what tends to happen today. People are still drawn to Jesus. He's drawing all people to himself. But for any variety of reasons, his community has become much less attractive. I think it has to do with what we as a community are trying to be and what we're trying not to be. Trying not to be a place of theological nitpicking and division, but a place of sacrifice for one another and for the other people in the lives around us. Loving God and loving others. And when we get too overly enraptured by the events of Jesus' life or the theological nuances in, around, in and around them, I think we become distracted. And we distract ourselves and others from what is the real draw. What is really attractive. 
and that's Jesus himself. One of the things I'm realizing through this text and through the teaching of 1 Corinthians 15 is that looking more deeply at the wonder of Jesus' resurrection and the kind of life that moment, that event enables, ultimately what it really was meant to do was to reveal the beauty of Jesus Christ. And couldn't we all stand? Couldn't we all use to see more of that kind of beauty? One last quote, but a very important one. Again, it's from the NIV commentary. Speaking about this term, I will draw all people. It says, this verse highlights the universal offer of salvation that's available in Jesus Christ. It's people's response to this offer that sets limits, not Jesus himself. Jesus is drawing all people to him. The only limits that are set are our response to that invitation. Jesus is still drawing it, the beauty of him crucified and resurrected, so that we might live with the love of a singular hope. That the draw of resurrection into his beauty will always be enough to carry us through whatever sacrifice is needed for this life. Because it wasn't the draw of the cross that brought Jesus to resurrection. It was the draw of the resurrection that brought Jesus through the cross. May we be that for the world as Jesus is that for us.